We are back. And in this hour, we are talking about your health and how do you protect your health even inside of some of the best hospitals in this country. Uh, in a study published on January 8th in JAMA Internal Medicine, researchers found that nearly one in four, one in four hospital patients who died or were transferred to in intensive care units experienced a diagnostic error. And nearly 18% of those misdiagnosed patients were harmed or died. Uh, joining me is Karen Spencer. She is a prof uh, professor of health and behavioral science at the University of Colorado. And Liz Sabo, Liz is a freelance journalist formerly with the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, Health News. And she is the journalist that broke this story. Welcome, Liz, and thank you uh, for being here. And also welcome, Dr. Spencer. Thank you so much for being a part uh, of this segment. Such an important topic, uh, really shocking findings in this study. Let's start with you, Liz. What uh, prompted you to break the story, to write the story, to get involved uh, in you know, studying how patients are diagnosed or misdiagnosed in hospitals? Thanks. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't a new problem. Uh, doctors have been studying misdiagnosis and knowing and have known it's happening for a century. Um, what interested me is, is earlier this summer, there was a, a study estimating almost 800,000 Americans die or are seriously disabled every year because of misdiagnosis. And I wanted to know who, who's most at risk. So mm -hmm. um, I found tons and tons of studies showing that women and minorities, racial and ethnic minorities, are at much higher risk. Um, it's roughly uh, 20 to 30 percent overall uh, more likely that a woman or a minority will have a misdiagnosis. Um, now, not all of those misdiagnoses cause harm, but some do. And I to many patients who really were harmed. Do we have any sense from the study, uh, Liz, what percentage of that 20 to 30 percent that are misdiagnosed, we're talking about women or minorities, actually die? Yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly, um, you know, how, how many die, but I, I talked to a woman named Charity Watkins, who's a very intelligent, very educated woman, and she was a graduate student when she had a child, and um, so obviously very well-educated, well-spoken, um, and she is Black, and she had some really troubling symptoms after the baby was born, and I'm, I'm sure you and your readers and listeners are familiar with the very high and shocking mm -hmm. rate of maternal mortality yes. for Black yes. women. So she developed shortness of breath. She she had to stop sometimes halfway up the stairs to catch her breath. Um, she had really unusual fatigue. Um, and her doctor said, well, it's just postpartum depression. If you're having trouble breathing, it's, it's probably just the flu. She felt like she was having a heart attack and went into the ER, waited five hours with a newborn baby at home and decided she couldn't wait anymore. She had to get back and nurse the baby. When she was finally seen and, and a doctor actually examined her. He found that her stomach was swollen, her legs were swollen. He did an x-ray and found that her heart was actually enlarged, a sign wow. of heart failure. And heart failure is one of the, the leading causes of maternal mortality um, uh, one week to a year after a woman gives birth. So um, they missed all of that. And 
we don't know for sure if if it has something to do with with her race and and that's why she was misdiagnosed um but we do know she was harmed she was in the icu for two weeks and nearly died Mm. um she's lost the um she's lost so much health that she can't have any more children her her doctors warned her if you try to have another baby you can end up with a heart transplant wow so that was that was devastating for her um you know, I think for a lot of us who've had newborn babies, just being away from your newborn baby for two weeks for any reason is really difficult and traumatic. Um, so we don't, you know, we can't say for sure, was it because of her race that she was misdiagnosed? But we do know that she's part of a pattern and that study after study shows in disease case after disease case, for whatever reason, Black people, Hispanic people, Native Americans, women in general, are more likely uh, to be misdiagnosed. Doctors are just more likely to get it wrong when treating mm-hmm. these patients. Do you know, uh, Dr. Spencer, if the Black uh, maternal mortality rate, uh, is that included in this 20 to 30%? Or are we talking about misdiagnosis in non-birthing people? Because I'm just trying to understand, you know, is that number, we hear those horrific statistics, we know those horrific statistics, we've reported on it, we've talked about it extensively uh, on this show. And I'm just trying to understand, are those numbers subsumed in this 20 to 30% misdiagnosis number? I mean, my read is that they are. They are. So we we definitely have these issues around birthing, but it extends far beyond that. So uh, Liz said there's not necessarily evidence to, you know, prove that there's a direct correlation between Charity's race uh, and her misdiagnosis. You know, what do you know about that? Like, how how can we make those determinations that uh, Black women, Hispanic, you know, people are misdiagnosed? I mean, how, how can we connect those dots? Super important question, because like so many things related to race, we we run up against this. Like it's hard to know exactly what to attribute it to. So there are studies out there that I've been part of, but there's other ones as well that are based on experiments and using what we call vignette studies. So having actors portraying patients and then having all these different combinations of characteristics. So gender having male and female actors, black and white actors, older and younger actors, and all these different combinations. And then showing them to doctors and asking doctors what we think is going on. So then we can compare a white woman and a black woman and a black man and a white man um, and sort of tease out what those influences are. And when we do those kinds of studies, uh, we see that doctors are much less certain of diagnoses for uh, black people than white people, and especially black women versus white men, when you put the gender and race interaction together, it's even more severe. And and why? I mean, you do these experiments, you said you have uh, actors sometimes playing different roles. What is it that, you know, if I go to medical school and I learn how to diagnose, you know, a heart condition or a broken leg, why is it that when I see a white man with that condition or a black woman that everything I learned in medical school, you know, does it fly out the window when I get to the black woman? That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's really, it's kind of mind boggling, but I think that there's things about our healthcare system and our medical education that contribute to it. So for example, for a long, long time, all of our data 
underlies what we know about medicine is based on males, um, especially white men, but even male cells, male mice. Um, and so there's this very deep entrenched idea that if it happens in a certain way with men, that it must carry over in the same way to women and then also to black people and black women. Um, and so even what you learn in medical education can be biased to start with. So if you assume that the doctor that's learned about how to diagnose a heart condition or a broken leg, he's learned it on a white male dummy or prototype. So when he sees the black woman, he just makes assumptions that her body is functioning uh, in the same way that that white male prototype that he used in medical school. I mean, this is a oversimplification, I know, but just it's try to make it understandable. <laughs> There, there's an assumption that looks the same. So if those symptoms are different, the doctors might be less certain, especially like a heart attack is a great example. And so if their certainty is lower, then we know that that is what predicts the likelihood that someone gets the right treatment. So, uh, okay. What is, what? I don't know if Liz in your reporting, now we know these horrific numbers. We know if you're black or, uh, you know, minority person, woman in particular, 20 to 30% more likely to be misdiagnosed. So someone in Charity's case, the woman that you interviewed or followed, what do you do? Because if the doctor says, oh, it's postpartum, go home, don't worry about it. You know, you, you keep having symptoms, you keep showing up at an emergency room, have to wait five hours, have to wait eight hours. You hear these stories all too often. Well, that's that's the million dollar question. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd like to write a lot more stories. Our, our story was relatively short and I had to break off just a piece of it, but there's a lot more to this story. I'm, I'm interested in solutions about how we as a society, how the medical system can get better and also giving advice to, to patients. Um, KFF, the, the foundation, did have a really interesting study recently that found that black patients are more worried about going to the doctor, that they're more likely than whites to have had a bad experience and they feel like they're going to be prejudged and they have to feel, and they may wanna dress or speak in a certain way. Um, it's just an extra burden. And I've heard that from people. I've heard uh, talking to a black mother who's experienced misdiagnosis and her sons, she'll say, look, you know, I'm a pharmacist and I worked for a large nationally known pharmacy chain, and I'll let them know that, that I'm a pharmacy tech and I'm that I'm in their industry. I'm one of them and mm -hmm. speak their language. Um, and people will talk to me about dressing a, a certain way. And it's, it's terrible because that's a burden that other people don't have that we shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. um, but th th there are, there are some things to do. I, I think if you're really scared and in the emergency room, what I've gleaned from, my years of reporting is have someone go with you. you. You may not be well enough to speak for yourself. So beyond just driving you there, um, if you can have someone who, who knows your, who knows you um, go and help you present your case to the doctor. Um, one of the things apparently that, that research has have, have found over and over again among people who are misdiagnosed is they say the doctor didn't listen to me. Mm. So and, and, you know, that's, that shouldn't be your fault. It shouldn't be your burden. But anything you can do to make anything clear, if there's any medical records, any charts, um, any, anyone you can go to help you be, be a good spokesman for yourself when maybe you're too sick to really be a spokesman. Mm -hmm. No, that's great advice. Uh, 
for those people that have the luxury, right, of having uh, someone to go with them or to have someone that can serve as kind of a health advocate for them. We know that there are many people that don't have uh, the luxury of a family member or a friend or someone from their community. We know there's some programs out there where they're actually, uh, you know, some uh, cities and communities will give people, will pair someone with a health advocate. Those aren't uh, available in all communities and all cities. So this could be difficult. And and Dr. Spencer, you know, asking questions and probing can be intimidating for the patient, right? You, you go to a doctor, There's we give so much deference to doctors in our society. We assume no matter what medical school you went to or, you know, what residency you completed, we assume if you're there and you are licensed and you have the white lab coat on, that what you're saying is something that, you know, is true and should be accepted. So I often talk to people who said either one, they were afraid to ask questions, two, didn't know the questions to ask, or three, tried to ask questions and felt like they were being dismissed or, you know, the doctor was moving so fast in and out of an appointment that they couldn't ask those questions. So you know, how do you address those issues for that person who's just saying, I don't really know what to ask. If someone says that I don't have a heart condition, you know, how do I know what test to ask for? Right. So I'm a sociologist. And so from my perspective, like the really urgent thing that we need is change in our healthcare system, because there's really smart, well-intentioned doctors who are sort of getting chewed up by this unforgiving system. They have to see a lot of people in a short period of time and mm-hmm. psychologists would call this cognitive load. So just like any of us, if the more things you're trying to remember and juggle in your brain, the more biased your decision-making is going to be. And so it's really a recipe for disaster. And I think we should be putting, you know, onus on, on our politicians to really revise the healthcare system. So people um, don't have to take care of so much of this themselves. And so as a sociologist, how do you approach this issue? So I mean, like, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I'm just curious because, you know, obviously as a sociology, sociologist, you're looking at this very differently than a medical doctor would look at this. So how do you uh, look at this issue? Yeah, well, I think as so these, these pieces go together, right? What individuals can do when they go to the doctor. But I think from a social perspective, like, right, we should have more diverse data about how bodies work. Um, We have this idea out there that anything, like women's health is sometimes called bikini medicine because it's the idea that everything is just like a man except for the parts of a body that would be covered by a bikini. Like that's Mm. inadequate. We need more diverse data. Uh, We need a more diverse workforce. We have more uh, black people and more women going to medical school than ever before, but they also drop out more um, and don't make it to being doctors at the end. So we need a more diverse workforce and we need to address some of these, I think, sort of conflicting incentives around payers and liability and patient well-being that doctors are are torn across all these things when they're trying to provide care and patients get mistreated in the process. Real quickly, why are black people and women dropping out of med school? Well, that is a very long story, but I think it's probably about it not being a very welcoming environment for all of these. Well, I just wonder, is there something in particular happening now in this moment, or is this a trend that has just always existed that, you know, the graduation rates or attrition rates were high, attrition rates high, graduation rates low? 
Um, I, I think it's the news story is that more of those people are starting medical school and then it's a pipeline problem. And so mm -hmm. we have seen that in many other fields at the same time. So in that sense, that's an older story. When we come forward, we'll continue this really interesting conversation about misdiagnoses and what are the chances that you could be misdiagnosed if you are hospitalized. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are talking with Dr. Karen Spencer. She is a professor of health and behavior science at the University of Colorado, and Liz Zabo. She is a freelance journalist that writes about health issues. She broke a story about disparities and misdiagnoses that happen at hospitals. And I'm reading from Liz's article. Uh, Liz, your article says, researchers call misdiagnosis an urgent, an urgent public health problem. The study found that rates of misdiagnosis range from 1.5% of heart attacks to 17.5% of strokes and 22.5% of lung cancers. That is shocking. So 22.5% of lung cancer diagnosis are incorrect. Is that what that paragraph or that sentence means, Liz? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm guessing it means... Um... Not so much that you're falsely diagnosed with lung cancer, but probably that your lung cancer is missed. Wow. Um, uh, you know, someone who is is maybe a woman or younger or a non-smoker, just statistically speaking, you're not as likely to have lung cancer. Um, you're not as likely to have a stroke. So sometimes doctors just sort of think about, well, you know, what's most likely in a patient who's young? I, I interviewed the lawyer who represented a young black woman who was in her 30s having a stroke with all the classic signs of stroke. She had um, facial paralysis on, on one side. She had uh, slurring of speech. She had weakness all on one side. And her boyfriend took her to the, to the ER uh, in time quickly enough that had they acted and gotten her the proper medication, she should have had a very excellent chance for recovery. Um, the doctors uh, attributed her symptoms to possible drinking for oh. going going out uh, the night before. Um, when the same boyfriend brought her back to the same hospital a day later, unfortunately, her symptoms were instantly recognizable as those of a stroke, and she has had permanent disability. Um, and one one would hope this was not overt racism, you, you sort of hope in your heart, no one is like that anymore. But um, doctors have said, you know, if, if you look at the math and, and sort of like the equations doctors are doing quickly in their head when they see a patient, they see an old male smoker, maybe overweight, he's got slurred speech, you know, he's 75. They're going to think stroke right away. But stroke is relatively rare and otherwise healthy young women in their 30s. So for some doctors, someone could present with the exact same symptoms, but if it's a different body and a different age, um, the right diagnosis could be sort of sitting there and it just doesn't, it just doesn't occur to them or, or it occurs to them and they immediately rule it out. Well, I think you said something really important here, and that's the racial stereotyping that obviously happened in this case. Yeah. I don't know of any occasions where you drink so much the night before that your face is paralyzed the next day. Now, maybe yeah. your speech is slurred while you're drunk, but literally, if you have gone to bed, if you've been asleep, 
Uh, you don't wake up the next day, even with a hangover, with slurred speech and paralysis. Uh, let's talk about that, uh, Dr. Spencer. The assumptions, and you hear this over and over again from Black patients, assuming that uh, Black people are on drugs, assuming that they are, in this case, uh, you know, have been partying, that their lifestyle is somehow responsible for their condition. We've We've heard this before. We've seen this before. And this doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be, you know, possibly getting worse, but definitely not moving or trending in the right direction. Right. So like Liz says, like the, the math, the calculations that they're supposed to be making in terms of like how common, how common a condition is in the population speaks to how likely it is in one individual who shows up, right? And so, I mean, in this case, this woman like did not fit the profile that they were expecting. Um, and so in that case, they're letting the, you know, these, these stereotypes overwhelm what's in front of them, right? In the face of contrasting data, they still let the stereotypes like win the day. Um, and so one of the things we found in these vignette studies is that we would show these doctors these videotapes of the actor patients and then stop it at the end and turn on the tape recorder and say, walk me through your reasoning. And what I found is they should be taking into account age, race, these kind of biologic, not but race is not a biological indicator, but like these um, epidemiologic patterns, right? And what they did instead was say that they made all sorts of assumptions about the patient's uh, cognitive ability, about their motivation, all this moralizing about how willing they were to follow a treatment. So it was like, oh, that guy said that he was a lawyer. And so I assume from that he's really smart and motivated and understands what we're doing. Or that woman, you know, she has a bunch of kids at home, so she's never going to be able to take care of her diet like she needs to. So extrapolating from the tiniest little social indicator to much broader and, you know, ill-founded ideas. You know, and, and in that example you gave of the woman with the stroke, not only did they make assumptions about her lifestyle that she had been drinking and, you know, this is somehow related to her party in the night before, but also what happens in these cases is your inability to get those tests done. Because if you were a white woman who came into the hospital or a white man in particular, and you presented with the same symptoms even if they couldn't pinpoint it or you didn't fit the bill for someone that would have a stroke because you're 30 years old, you're much more likely to get an MRI, a CT scan, a series of blood tests and other workup that would then give them more clues, answer more questions. And we see in the case of a racial minority uh, that there is not only the assumption that your lifestyle has probably caused this, but there's also assumptions about perhaps your ability to pay. Do you have good insurance? And they start making other assumptions. I was helping advocating for a friend whose elderly mother uh, presented at the hospital. And this doesn't, and, and what's so uh, infuriating about this is it cuts across socioeconomic levels and classes as well, because my friend, very prominent lawyer, takes her mom into a, a hospital visit. Her mom has cancer. It's diagnosed as cancer. It's a rapidly growing cancer. But rather than talk about clinical trials, rather than talk about treatment that could extend her life, I mean, if anybody, you know, people will take six months uh, uh, for an extension of their life. He told her, go home. He assumed, one, you're 80-something years old. Go home, uh, basically call hospice care in, 
and call your family, like prepare for her death. And my friend who is very intelligent, smart, advocate, lawyer, was so devastated just by the news from the doctor and how dismissive he was, how he made this determination in a 15 or minute or less visit, had never seen her before because he was the cancer specialist. And he never got to learn that this woman before presenting was active, walked one to two miles a day, lived independently, had an active social life with family and friends, and was not someone who otherwise was thinking she was about to die, yes, had an aggressive cancer. And when I called the hospital to talk to the, the um, uh, busman and to talk with the patient advocate, what I learned was that there are clinical trials and that oftentimes when people come in with advanced cancers, they will be offered an opportunity to uh, partake in, participate in clinical trials. And there were some drugs. And after fighting with this hospital, going all the way to the top to the medical director, the mom was able to get surgery. She was able to uh, have some uh, treatment. And it did extend her life for six to eight months. And that lifetime, that ex you know, those months that she lived, her quality of life was pretty decent. I mean, and we we were just stunned and shocked at the assumptions made about her mother with her and her brother. So to your point, Liz, she not only had one person, she had two people with her, two yeah. very educated people. And still this doctor, white male doctor made those assumptions. And I'll tell you a really interesting twist on the story is they gave her mom a second opinion with a white female doctor who was instantly more empathetic, learned about her lifestyle, took the time, made suggestions about these alternatives that could happen. And it literally saved her mom's life uh, for wow. six to eight months. Uh, and, and those kinds of stories, again, so imagine, and I don't want to take a lot of credit for this, but you know, imagine that they didn't have access to someone that could make those calls and go all the way to the top to the medical director, uh, which when we come forward, I'll talk about how difficult that was and how I had to use uh, every relationship that I had in this town in order to even find out who the medical director was. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and I'm talking with Dr. Karen Spencer and Liz Zabo about a really shocking new report out that uh, makes it pretty clear that going to a hospital, particularly if you are a woman or a minority, uh, can be life-threatening, that there is a 20 to 30% chance if you are in one of those uh, demographics that you will be misdiagnosed and that that misdiagnosis could lead to you ending up in intensive care or even dying. Uh, one of the things we were talking about is you told us about the lung cancer that's mentioned in your article is that your lung cancer may not be diagnosed. I, I want to read some other things from your, uh, your article. It says black people with depression are more likely than others to be misdiagnosed, misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. Minorities are less likely than whites to be diagnosed early with dementia, depriving them of opportunities to receive treatments that work best in the early stages of the disease. And the article goes on to talk about, you know, as you said, this misdiagnosis issue is not new. Uh, 
And there's a doctor uh, cited here, quoted from Baylor College of Medicine, who says, look, a lot of this could be resolved if doctors would just listen, if they understood the patient's story really well, if they asked follow-up questions, if they examined the patient and ordered basic tests. Uh, that's a statement from uh, a doctor at Houston's Michael E. DeBakey Virginia Medical Center, uh, and he says when talking to patients who've been misdiagnosed, one of the things they hear over and over again is the doctor didn't listen to me. Now, back to my friend's mother's case, everything that these doctors said happened. They didn't listen. They didn't ask follow-up questions. They didn't order basic tests. But then even advocating uh, Dr. Spencer for my friend's mom was so incredibly challenging. I am a lawyer that knows lots of doctors, that knows lots of elected officials. I had to use those relationships because there was nowhere on the website for this particular hospital or this medical center that identified who the medical director was. And when I would call the normal hotline or the, the general line, no one would tell me. And finally, after calling so many times, the, the operator or person answering the phone finally said, we're not provided that information. We are not allowed to give out that information. All I can give you is a generic patient advocate number. And so I had to call a doctor that I know that I know that worked at that hospital. And he told me the medical director's email and phone number and said, please don't share with him that you got it from me. So we had to go through this very clandestine process for me to write to the medical director. Now, when I wrote to him, he did respond very quickly. You know, he did recognize the seriousness of it. And when I told him who my friend was, what her credentials were, I told him who I was. The response was immediate. Mother got the second appointment, uh, the, you know, the uh, second opinion appointment very quickly and things moved. But I had to move heaven and earth to even find the director. Is that common, uh, Dr. Spencer, that these medical directors, that these hospitals keep that kind of information about their high level management secret? So that is a little bit further from my area of expertise, but this story you're telling, I think that's not uncommon at all that the, the idea of like bring someone with you can really amount to an epic amount of work um, and challenge. And so that that's a very interesting story about like the medical director's information not being available. But I think it does point to like, it seems like a piece of this puzzle is like, why is so difficult to correct missteps once they happen, right? When people, like even the story with the young woman having the stroke, when she comes back the second time, like, and you're still following up and trying to advocate for someone. And it's it's not a ship that changes direction very easily. Well, I can tell you this, Liz, one of the things my doctor friend that worked there told me was to be uh careful in the language that I used about the doctor that was rude and in our opinion racist because he said that that doctor was pretty high up on the food chain and that you know they're not used to being challenged or questioned so one of the reasons they don't correct their mistakes is because they have a, a god complex in some cases now this isn't all doctors my friend's a great doctor and he did give me the information there are lots of other good doctors out there. So I don't want to make this, you know, some big generalization about all doctors, but uh, he was very clear to me that this guy was, you know, kind of a, 
a God in this medical system and that to challenge him could be difficult. But the medical director, again, you know, kudos to him. He wasn't trying to protect the guy. He didn't say anything one way about it. You know, he didn't acknowledge that the guy was wrong. He just jumped into gear to correct it. So what do you know, Liz, if anything, and your research about, you know, how easy or difficult it is to even make a complaint when something goes wrong? Sure. That's a that's a really good question. I did want to clarify one stat. Um, it, it's not so much that women and minorities, uh, it's not that 20 to 30 percent of the time you're going to be misdiagnosed. It's just you, you're 20 to 30 percent more likely, likely. Than, a white, than a white man. Uh, OK, so, great. you know, your really difference. Small. Thank you. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it can be it can be a problem. Um, you know, sometimes health reporters are probably the le- the doctor's least favorite patient because <laughs> we know maybe too much for them. And a doctor will tell me something, and sometimes I button my lip um, because I know it's wrong. Um, other times, a doctor will say something, and I'll think, okay, um, I'm going to take my family member to a different doctor because I know the evidence, and I know that's I know that's wrong. Um, I, I think a patient is always a patient with a serious disease like cancer, especially stage four or advanced cancer, like your friend, you are always within your rights to ask for a second, second opinion. Um, and a doctor may be offended, but that's clearly their problem. Um, there's actually really good data from, um, and that I'm looking at right now that getting a second opinion results in a change in diagnosis 14% of the time. Um, mm. and a change in treatment 37% of the time. So usually what happens if you ask for a second opinion, maybe you're going, you know, maybe you live in a small town and you see your local cancer doctor. Um, and maybe the second opinion would come from, if you can make this journey to go to a bigger city, um, to a bigger city hospital and see a real specialist um, who really specializes in that cancer, especially if it's a, a rare cancer. Um, you know, that, that is not very common. Um, but I, I do think you're definitely within your rights and no one should be offended if you ask for a second opinion, because you can give them that statistic. Second opinions change the treatment 37% of the time, which is a pretty big statistic. Um, but do you have any knowledge, Liz, about like, the, the problem I had in even finding this director? I, I mean, is that common? Do you have any experience with that? I mean, I, I found that to be so unusual. Like, I just thought I'd be able to call the general number, ask for the person's name, get their email and their phone number. And it wasn't, I mean, they were not at liberty to provide that. that that's pretty surprising because the, the medical director's name is usually uh, very public. Um, especially if this is a, a hospital that gets public funds, if it's a public hospital, if, if it's if it's largely taxpayer supported, uh, like a VA hospital or any other public hospital, that should be public information. Um, as a journalist, I can tell you that over my over 30 years in journalism, I frequently butt heads with the medical system about things that are kept private. Um, I did a, a big investigation of the the state medical board in Virginia that ended up resulting in a, a new state law. I don't I don't know if it made the board better. I hope it protected patients, but it did change a law because uh, in every state, if you want to make a complaint, you know about your doctor, you want them to be disciplined. The the state medical board is is the place to go. They're the ones who can revoke a doctor's license. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost never do. Right. Um, Yeah, I I doubt if this doctor even that, you know, I I don't imagine this doctor was disciplined or anything happened to him. 
you know, the medical director just jumped into gear and made someone else available for a second opinion and, you know, made sure that things went smoothly from there. Uh, unfortunately, as you said, Dr. Spencer, this shouldn't be so hard. It shouldn't be so much work on a patient. You're sick. Who has time to go on a mission to find the medical director? Uh, you know, who has time to write lengthy emails trying to explain how you were poorly treated? Uh, I have, you know, I've been able to help some other friends who didn't even know that there was such a thing as the patient's rights office within hospitals, that they even had the right to challenge the doctor, to seek a second opinion or to file a complaint. You talk about the medical board, Liz, many people are totally unaware that something like that exists. Uh, states make it very difficult, uh, particularly even states like California, to file medical malpractice suits against doctors. You have to have affidavits and establishing that the doctor's care fell below the standard of care. So uh, I'm with you, Dr. Spencer. We are in need of a major, major overhaul of our medical system. Ladies, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Such an interesting uh, conversation, such great information. Really appreciate your uh, brilliance on this topic.